As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me one of my greatest inspirations and dearest teachers from afar, Judith Hansen Lassiter. Judith has taught yoga around the world since 1971. So this is the real deal. If you're a new teacher and by some strange chance you haven't heard of Judith Hansen Lassiter, please perk up your ears. If you are a person who would like to extend your lifespan, please perk up your ears. Judith Hanson Lassiter is here to teach us three things today. I have all three of my favorite books of yours in front of me, and that doesn't even cover all of your books. I have What We Say Matters, which is an entire exploration on practicing nonviolent communication, but that's not the point of today. I have Restore and Rebalance, which is an entire tome of the most awesome restorative yoga wisdom. And then the real point of our talk today is Yoga Myths. This is a book that has changed the way I see much of what I do. Judith, welcome. Wow. I want to meet this person. She sounds fun. She's badass. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and giving me this, this uh, chance to get to know you better and to speak yeah. with you and yeah. include in our conversation other people who are also very interested in nature of reality and how to put your foot in trikonasana from one end to the other of, of this practice of yoga. Speaking of trikonasana, when I get into yoga myths and I started to study my own, my very own trikonasana, I realized so many things. First of all, where the weight is on my feet, how my hips are organized, the myth, the main myth that you unpack about being between two panes of glass Yikes. Can we talk a little bit about that? This is for yogis. Listen up. If you practice yoga and you've been hearing instruction about trikonasana for any length of time, you might be surprised by what you're about to hear. Yes, I would love to talk about that, but I want to preface it by saying, and I'm hoping you will back me up since you've clearly read some of the book, that the tone of the book is not, this is right and you are wrong. The way I teach is this. I think of the asana as a question, yes, not an answer. And when I take my practice or I teach others, it is with the attitude that we're exploring the pose. And not that I don't have an idea of the form I want, but the whole feeling tone of it is, it's a question. And so we're asking ourselves, if we hold the hip back, what effect do we get? If we allow the hip not to just fall forward, the back pelvis, 
but allow it to find that middle path, allow the back hip its own intelligence, then what effect do I get? So we need to think more of questions, I believe, when we practice and not rules. Got it. In your words on this page, which is page 48 on Yoga Myths, just allow the natural intelligence of the pelvis to assert itself and your pelvis will turn just the right amount. This has changed my practice. Honestly, I do, I do trikonasana at least once a day. And instead of trying to force the top hip back, my listener, just go ahead and you can put yourself into trikonasana right now, or you can just imagine that top hip, you know how we've been taught to like pry it open and rotate it out to just let the pelvis be in the pose while my hand is on my shin or a block or the floor, if I'm feeling particularly open, has opened up my breathing, completely changed it. You sound excited and I am tremendously excited that I could be of help to you in that pose mm. without even ever seeing you in person. It's so amazing, our world. It but is so amazing. That's such a key thing that you just said. You didn't say to me, I got so much further. I really, really stretched the heck out of my hamstrings. You probably don't have any hamstrings anymore. You probably have them surgically removed like me. I mean, hamstrings are not a big thing for me, no. Uh, no. but for lots of people, they are. Uh, mm. You didn't say anything like that. What you reflected, which so pleases me, I found my breath. I, I could feel the breath because when you feel the breath, you're connected to the energy of the pose. Mm -hmm. So it's not a static statue that we create of perfect form. Right. And whenever I, I think it's actually a life practice, you remind us of that whenever, whatever situation I'm in, whether I'm having a disagreement with an intimate in my life, or I'm sitting at a board meeting and I'm bored. I think that's why they're called boards. <laughs> this is boring. <laughs> oh, that's such a good, my no, boyfriend would have made a joke like that. That's a good, I know one. it's so hokey. Uh, but, so hokey. I like it. Anyway, it's a really bad pun, but it's a gauge. Our, the ability to breathe freely in an asana is telling you that the body is reaping deriving nourishment from that experience. It is finding its own intelligence. It is the flower opening at its own speed. There is a harmony between your breath, your energy, your mind, your, your soul, your body, everything is flowing like a river. And so that I take that lesson, as I said before, into my life. And whenever I, I wanna make an important decision, you know, can I breathe? Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I, whatever position I'm in, asana or not, can I breathe? If my breathing is impeded, something's going on somewhere in my psyche, right. somewhere. So I find that lovely what you said. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's what changed. That's the only thing I could perceive when you. We tried to record this once before, my listener, and we were cut off. Interestingly, at like 20 minutes by a tech issue. But we got to the point where I was able to relay to Judith how absolutely vital it's been to look at the poses as questions rather than answers and look at the, not look at rules, but look at just inquiries. So thank you again for that. So 
one thing is we have met in person, but we've never like shook hands or seen each other face to face. But there were two classes at one of my very first yoga journal conference um, when I was, I don't know, in my early 30s, probably. And I went and took your class amidst two or 300 other people in a giant ballroom back then. And it was delicious. I didn't, I was like a little kid. I had no, you know, I wasn't going to come up and talk to you. I had no, nothing. I, had, I was just learning for the first few months. And somebody said, why don't you go to this conference? And I was like, cool. And I took class with you and Richard Freeman and Rod Stryker and Rodney Yee and all the folks now who, you know, I, I consider dear, dear teachers and colleagues, even if I dare. In any case, it was, it's an honor to have you here. And your books honestly have served in every possible way in my life. The nonviolent communication book, I just want to mention briefly, it's called What We Say Matters. And if you came from a volatile household as a kid, if you had folks in your life who found it necessary or convenient to shout and create chaos where there didn't need to be chaos, I want to invite you to get this book because it has changed the way that I communicate. What prompted this book, Judith? And then we're going to go back to yoga myths. Thank you for asking. I'm glad you like the book because what we say matters. It, it matters in our personal life. It matters how we say it to ourselves silently in our head. Mm. And it matters as teachers that, you know, it doesn't matter how much yoga, you know, or how beautifully you can practice or anything. If we, if we as teachers cannot communicate what we feel, transfer that into words. And then the student catches the words and translates them back into the feelings and experience of the pose. If we can't communicate, we are communicators first and foremost. And so I went to a seminar with Marshall Rosenberg, who is a psychologist, and he was influenced a lot by Carl Rogers, humanistic psychology. I studied with him quite a bit. And when I went to this first training, I'm telling you, I, I, thought, I kept thinking, I love how he's talking, but what is he doing? I couldn't figure it out. So then I ended up, finally, I went to nine trainings, some nine days long. I took three of those. I did a lot of training with him and I began to use some of these simple ideas and it, 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 it changed my life. I mean, I had exactly the same experience, but why I really liked this particular system is because it starts with introspection. Mm-hmm. And that's what yoga starts with. The first thing is pay attention to your breath. Observation. Go inside, you know, and that's what his technique says. You want to speak. All right. So be clear about what you're asking for. Right. Because right. every, every, he taught me everyone speaks in order to get what they want. You know, a language is a tool to manipulate the external world. May I have a glass of water? You know, would you help me carry this? Uh, Would you stay seated? Would you turn your left foot out and your right foot in? Stretch your arms to the side, inhale your breath. And like a ship under full sail, sail over your leg, exhale and find your trikonasana today. Hmm. You know, whatever we say, we're trying to get people to give us what we want. And that's not a bad thing. But unless we can be first connected with ourselves and then connected 
with the other person with respect that they have autonomy, even if they're two years old, right? that we're not going to get what we want. And I just took to this like a duck to water, as seems you have done. Yeah. Because now I say to my students, no, that's wrong, which no one wants to hear that because we all secretly believe we're right all the time. (laughs) So if you say to them, that's not exactly what I wanted you to do. Let's try this way. Tell me what you think of this. Because one of the big principles of nonviolent communication is the, I want to say mutuality, but I'm going to edit myself and say the recognition of mutuality, mm-hmm. that, that you and I are having a conversation, a relationship, a challenge, a pose, it's mutual. And when you have a sense of mutuality, that the other person has autonomy, has their own needs, then as well as I do, there's such a deep level of respect and willingness to be present in the practice. And I just taught a series on that. I think uh, I think you may have gotten some of those audios. Uh, I did. I, ha- I I didn't want to listen to them before our interview. I just wanted to like leave it so that I could just ask you the questions that I have before I put too much into my head. I like that. So difficult conversations. I used to think that when someone would get upset with me, it was difficult, difficult for me, and I would tend to avoid conflict. I was extremely conflict avoidant. And then I studied NBC and it really helped me see that the difficulty of if it's a difficult conversation where you have to break up with someone or fire someone or whatever, that the difficulty is not the situation. The difficulty is what's going on in me. And if I can tune into that, give myself a little empathy, become more present, then I have the chance of having a little more clarity about what the other person might want and need and have some compassion for that. And when I shift, I'm no longer afraid of the fact that we have a different opinion. Because we can just, we can just agree to disagree. Yeah, but on a, not just a verbal level, like an emotional like a deep, respectful level. Exactly. So let me tell you, I was I was with my guy and we went to visit someone in his life who's very important in his life. And that person has a completely different political view than I do. So that person was talking about that political view. And I just was just giving myself empathy. Mm. And then after it was over, he said, oh gosh, you must think I'm horrible because of all those things I said, you know? And people think when you live in California, they know your political, your politics, which is pretty much true, but- Pretty um, much. Pretty much, but not a hundred percent, of course. Right, and, right, right. and so, you know what I said to him? He felt yeah. really bad about himself at the moment. And I said, would you like to know what I heard you say? That's what I said to him. He said, yes. You're so good. And he said, yes. I said, I heard how much you love your country. And what I believe is that you and I have different roadmaps, but I love my country. You know, when I hear the Declaration of Independence read on NPR radio on the 4th of July, I get chills. I mean, it's, you know, 
so I love my country. I said, and so that's what I heard that we just have different strategies, different roadmaps up. And he just looked at me and he said, how did you do that? <laughs> I listened, I listened well, the four components of nonviolent communication, which you review on page 29 of this book, observations, feelings, needs, and requests has absolutely completely shifted my entire household. I haven't talked to anybody about it, although James studying Marshall Rosenberg separately from me. But these four sort of chronological events that happen where you first accept what the other person is feeling, accept what you're feeling, be aware, be awake, pay attention, what happened? The second is your feelings. Where do you feel this? What is the body sensation? What is the, the feedback that you have about your own needs and the other person's needs? And then you go into needs. Three, life in action, you say, universal qualities, using a language that connects both of us to the very energy of life. This is so delicate and subtle and important for all of us. And I just, if I may just have two more minutes on this, and then we're going back to yoga myths. Talk to my listener and me about the way in which whatever the most recent or most memorable experience you've had of relaying needs in the context of practicing nonviolent communication. Well, I was having a conversation. I don't want to, I'm trying to, why I'm pausing is I'm trying to think how to tell you about it without revealing identities. Sure. And protecting privacy. Sure. Um, so I think what I would rather do than the most current one sure. is one that I have permission to share. Oh, perfect. Yes, please. It was with my daughter, Lizzie. Whom I love, who's taken my retreat, and I am absolutely smitten with this person. She's such a good teacher also. Such a good teacher. She's the perfect daughter for me. So she was about 13. And she came running in the kitchen and she said, mom, and she named her friend. I'll call her friend Katie. So we want to go to the rock concerts, you know, and blah, 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 and stay out till two o'clock. And can we go? And can we go? And can we go? So immediately inside my head was this, you're crazy if you think I'm letting you go to that. That was my first reaction, right? But I knew that if I, re if I said that to her, we would get in an argument and you know where that would go. And then, you know, you can't sneak out of our house because the alarm is on at night and stuff. So that's really good, but you know, it, it could cause a huge thing. And so, so I gave my, for the first thing you actually do in this work is you give yourself empathy, like, okay, I'm feeling upset because I had, and why, you know, and I can do this now quite quickly because of so many years of practice, but it's like, I'm feeling upset because I have a need for her safety. That was what really mattered to me when I thought right. about it. Right. Not that she goes to a quote unquote rock concert, but her safety and well-being, which is my number one thing. And so I, I gave myself a little empathy and I calmed down and I used the mantra, which is wonderful to use with teenagers and adults acting like teenagers. Who are, <laughs> and you just say, oh, tell me more. Such a good one. And so she just starts rattling off at who's going to be there, the groups. I didn't know anything, blah, blah, blah. Because I have empathy. I've been young. I've wanted to do these things and have fun and adventure in the world as I was growing up. I can relate to that. It's not something foreign to me. So she told me all of that. And then I got in touch with the fact that what I cared about was her safety. So I, 
I said, okay, do you want to talk more about this now? Respecting her. So that shows her how to act in these situations that maybe I don't want to talk about it right now because I'm expecting a phone call. So I said, do you want to talk more about it right now? Yes. Okay. All right. It sounds like fun. What about, I have several things, as you know, I tell her, I told her, I care most about your safety and well-being. That's my job. And she rolls her eyes. I say, what about if number one, your brother, who's five and a half years older, very responsible first child, you know, said, what if your brother drives you over there? She said, oh, that would be great. Plus Katie thinks he's cute, you know? So they're, they're like, I don't know, he's 19 or something. And they're 18. Anyway, he's, he's in college. He's super responsible. Mm-hmm. So she said, oh, that'd be fine. And I said, then what about the idea that if you guys go to this concert and you want to go to like the snack bar, you want to go to the bathroom, he goes with you. Cause I did not want these two blonde cuties wandering around a rock concert by themselves. She said, oh yeah, that's okay. He could pay. And I said, yeah, cause I knew I'd pay him back. But anyway, then I said, I said, and, and the final one is I'd really like you to be home by midnight. And she said, okay. And I said, we agree. She said, yeah. So the, and she, you have to ask your brother. So she asked her brother and he said, yes. So they went off on the appointed day and they went to the concert and about 10 o'clock, they came home, 1030. I said, oh, you're home. She said, yeah, it was too loud. Wow. So because in that situation, what we tend to think is I don't want my daughter to go to a rock concert at age 13. Right. With your friend. Okay, but that's not really what's underneath it. What's underneath it, you're afraid for her well-being. Someone gives them a joint or someone gives them beer or God knows, you know, a parent's mind just goes wild. And so I don't really care if she goes and listens to that music. So I was, the the, the self-awareness of what my need really was were her safety and well-being. Then I could offer her that as a strategy and then we could, agree because you know if just in conclusion you know it could have gone terribly and she could have not spoken to me for you know just tried to sneak out and it could Mm -hmm. have become a huge big deal Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by that time she was taller than me anyway she could have left yes she has autonomy i'm not afraid of her autonomy i respect her autonomy i raised her to be an autonomous woman right and everyone has autonomy and so we dealt with my issue she accepted the terms and it was like, if you, okay, you want to do a grown up thing. This is how grown ups communicate. This is how grown ups solve problems. Yep. And it was, it was fabulous. Wow. This is really good for the parents who are listening right now. If you're listening and you have a kid who's any age really before 15, this is going to change the way you operate with that kid. And and it gives the kid, because I've now done it with Jonah too, and I screw up, oh my God, plenty. But when I do manage to do this, and I even sometimes have to do it retroactively, he trusts me. And that's the basis of everything with us. That's the basis of all human relationships. It's really interesting. There's a book called Lying by Sam what is his name? Is a very, a very, I should look it up on the internet while we're here. Oh, I, I can see the book. Anyway, it's a short book. You can read it in one sitting. And um, it's the best thing I've ever read about lying. 
you know, and I, and I recommend it to my yoga students when we're studying Satya, because mm. why don't you look it up while I'm talking, just go to Amazon and look up <coughs> line by Sam and see who it is. Okay. Just can't think of his last name, but what it says in there is so, so true, which is the problem with lying is it destroys trust. And once trust is destroyed, you can never totally get it back. Sam Harris, of course. Sam Harris, that's exactly it. And yeah. you can never totally get it back. And trust, because trust is built like building a rock wall or a brick wall, like brick by brick, instance by instance, situation by situation, you build your trust. And if you blow a hole in that by lying, it's never going to be the same. The book focuses also, interestingly, on the importance of finally sacrificing your white lies, the little lies that you tell about random things. I saw that movie. I read that book when you didn't. And he says that in those situations where folks often lie, we call them white lies, hilariously, um, those lies are told for the purpose of sparing people discomfort. And it's just not, doesn't do anything. Those are the ones that are so tempting, but those are also the ones that degrade trust between people. I, I have a slightly different opinion about why we, I, first of all, I don't believe in white lies. To me, there's lies or no lies. Because, sure, sure, because sure, sure. you know, it's this concept of health food. There's no such thing as health food. That's a marketing thing. There's either healthy food or non-healthy food. There's not health food, like some special category. So white lies is a lie that I find convenient to say because it's not, I tell myself I'm protecting the other person, but really what I'm doing is protecting myself from the blowback from the other person I'm predicting is going to happen that will stimulate discomfort in me. And I don't want to feel that discomfort. It's like 4,000 speculations packaged into one Ziploc bag. There you go. So it's really not about the other person because there are ways for me to say to you, I know you counted on me coming to the party and I wanted to come, but now I'm unable to come. And I can imagine that you're feeling maybe sad or irritated or disappointed. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that I could imagine that I would feel that way as well. So do you want to talk about this a little bit more now? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, maybe we could just have, I just love to take you out to your favorite restaurant on Friday. Nice. I know this is disappointing to you. In other words, you tell them the truth with empathy. Yeah. I have a mantra that I, I like, which is when in doubt, tell the truth. And since I'm always in doubt, I try to tell the truth. But see, what, what nonviolent communication taught me, I was raised in the South and we were very tactful and polite and we were raised that way. And the ability to say no and stay in connection is what nonviolent communication taught me. Because if I run over my own needs and give in to yours when I don't want to, <clears throat> you know, what's going to happen. I'll make you pay in some way. I'm passive aggressiveness mm -hmm. is not dead, you know, and it's, it's really not, why would I do violence to myself? I won't do it to you. And so For sure. when I tell the truth, I practice yoga. Right. Right. Thank you. The only other thing I wanted to focus on with you from this sort of line of 
inquiry is regarding practicing self-empathy. And you have a beautiful practice in, in the book, which I've noted for myself on page 37. This means that you say to yourself when you are in a, in a bind, you're in a real pickle, you sit or lie comfortably in a quiet place, recall something someone said to you today that caused a reaction. You may want to write down the interchange. You may want to slow it down in your mind this way by writing it. Once you have the situation in mind, distill it down to one simple sentence that the other said to you and use the observation language to start. So in essence, you're taking whatever was said, however complicatedly it managed to be articulated, and parsing it down to what that person, that little kid in there, is trying to obtain or accomplish. And in so doing, you can start to see the little six-year-old or five-year-old in there just, tr just trying to get what they need. And you can speak to that. It's so smart. It's just, it, it just breaks everything down back to a bunch of kids in a playground who are in various states of disarray. Yeah. And when I look at our president, that's what I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge some years ago, and I was thinking about a conversation I'd had with someone, and I was feeling angry because of the way this person spoke to me. So I was in my head going, how can he speak to me that way? And mm -hmm. generally, you know, that was really rude, blah, I had all these judgments. And, you know, really, generally what we often do, at least I do, and I think maybe you do as well, when that happens, we pick up the phone, we call our friend and we say, can you believe so-and-so said this to me? And then he said that and that. And they go, that was horrible. And we just, we get sympathy, which is agreement. And we just go round and round in a circle and we don't resolve this issue. And we tell this story at dinner parties five years later because right. we're not resolved or integrated. So I was, I was driving across the Golden Bridge and I, you know, mm -hmm. and then I thought, wow, oh yeah, nonviolent communication, empathy. Okay, what am I feeling right now? Because I knew what the observation was. What am I feeling right now? And I, I realized that I felt, I kind of brought my consciousness down from my brain center and down to my belly center. And I felt hurt. Yeah. I thought if you had asked me before, I said, I'm just mad. No, you're hurt. I was, I said, I was really hurt that he would talk to me like that. That hurt my feelings. Mm -hmm. I really, I really felt hurt. And then it, the anger went away. And then I played with that awareness all the way across the bridge where mm -hmm. I would just go up into my head and tell myself thoughts about it. And I would get angry. And then I would drop back down into the feeling state in my belly and I would feel hurt. And yeah. then I did that several times and it was really a good lesson. And then I just said, how human of me to feel hurt by those words. Mm. And that's a mantra I use a lot when I, when I don't act the way I would have wished or said, I, you know, the times where we say what we, we really think we're saying something that's going to help someone and it, it hurts their feelings or they don't, they hear it yeah. in a different way or, you know, and you're, you feel so bad. But how human of us, that's what we do. We, we do and say things that hurt other people unintentionally. Yeah. And so how human of me that I was hurt. And then the whole thing just began to resolve in me. 
yeah. when I gave myself empathy for my humanity. But I tell you, going down into my belly and feeling what was really, I was hurt. And often people feel hurt, afraid, their need for respect is not met. I mean, it's really simple things that get so sophisticated with, with the thought, with the words that they lose it. So that's the thing. Empathy is to go into yourself, find out what you're feeling, what need of yours wasn't met. My need for respect in that instance wasn't met. And the strategy I was using in that moment was to heal myself through it. So brilliant. So simple. It's, it is brilliant. I mean, I, I, it's not my brilliance. My luck was stumbling on this. And I think it's a very harmonious practice. And that's what I write about in the book that it's okay. Satya, you hear Satya, the sutras, of course, Satya, but what does it look like? What does it sound like? What does Satya feel like? And that's what this system was the missing link for me of how to mm. actual, actualize Satya. Yeah. In real life, in real time. It's happening in my house, thanks to you. James has the Marshall book, which I don't know why, it just never, I read it a couple times, but it never really sunk in. Your book brought it home for me. So I'm so grateful. Um, I want to go over one last thing from Yoga Myths, which I think is a huge one for any yogi and then we can possibly do a part two. Um, it's the section on the pelvis. You start this section by saying the pelvis is everything, which is absolutely true, no question. Um, now I do uh, some strength training several times a week with a trainer who, with whom I used to work in New York, and we do a lot on the hips and articulation and strengthening and so forth. Um, do not anchor your sitting bones in seated twists. When I read through the book and started practicing in this section, I made big stars and wrote this in big letters on the side margin. And I thought it might be nice for you to talk about this because seated twists are constantly happening in all the yoga classes. And because many people are practicing on Zoom without a teacher there to help them and adjust them, I thought it might be really important to talk about this one in particular because it's so ubiquitous. Okay. It's a little anatomical. So let's go to anatomy with an open heart. Okay. Um, if you can imagine the skeleton, you see the vertebral column coming down in the back and it ends in the sacrum, which is a, it's a pyramid doing headstand. It's wide at the top where it joins with the pelvis and it comes down to a point and then the coccyx bone is there. So if you're looking at the skeleton from the back, you see the back of the pelvis joining with the sacrum. And that's called the sacroiliac joint, because the iliac bone of the pelvis joins with the sacrum. Is it clear in your mind? In mine, yes. Yes. Okay. So that, 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 what I said made some sense even without, I'd love to show you pictures, but. No, no, for sure. For sure. And anyone who practices yoga, you've been in a few classes, you kind of know what. I hope you know, but for sometimes sure. people don't know. Um, now, the next fact is the sacroiliac joint is a joint of stability not mobility. A joint is any place two bones come together and you have places in your body where like your pubic symphysis, your pubic bone is joined by really strong cartilage. It's not a, it's not a really a joint of mobility. It, it gives a little bit when you walk and certainly when you give birth, but it gives a little bit. Yes. And the sutures in your head, they used to say were immobile, but I, I don't believe that because I've had my the plates of my skull <laughs> adjusted by magic fingers. 
-hmm. So it gives a little bit, right? It breathes a little bit. And the sacroiliac joint is in that club. It two to four centimeters, maybe, maybe less. It gives when you walk, because if the pelvis were a bony ring, you would walk and you would put your whole right pelvis forward to your looking to the left. You would not be able to keep facing forward. It's like if you take hold of a towel, a hand towel at both ends, you roll it up and then you take one forward and one back, you sort of twist it. The sacrum is in the middle. It like goes forward on the left when I step forward and uh, on the left and forward on the right. So there's this little give in there and that's a good thing. But sacroiliac dysfunction is almost always too much mobility. It tends to happen 70 to 80% more to women. It's much more common in yoga with women. Men do have it, but it's almost always women because we have a shallower joint. We have less ligamentous support. We have less space of where the two bones come together. We have all these reasons and our hip bones are wider apart in relationship to our body. So we get even more torque. So here we go and we sit this woman down in a yoga class. Mm. And the tradition says, for example, you're sitting Dandasan, leg straight in front, you bend your right knee and you put it on the other side of your left knee, mm-hmm. that twist, right? Okay, you've locked the sacrum, you've locked the pelvis. Or if you, you're sitting in Dandasan, you're gonna do uh, Marichyasan C or Marichyasan three, where you bend your right leg and then you turn toward your right and you hold around with your left your left arm, you put your right arm behind you mm-hmm. and you're trying to twist. If you hold the sitting bones down, your arm is now attempting to bring your vertebral column into the twist. So it pulls the sacrum with it at the same time that anchoring the sitting bones of the pelvis hold the pelvis apart. So you're now in effect separating the ilium, the left side of the pelvis, especially from the left side of the sacroiliac joint. Oh boy. And it doesn't like it. I just got a visual for the first time of some, an injury that I got back in the nineties. And this is why I tell teachers never ever push someone in a twist. There's minimal movement there anyway. Don't push them, put your hand on their, like if they're doing it to the right, what I might do, may, may I touch you? And then I put my hand gently over their left shoulder blade. And I say, with an exhalation, move away from my hand. Oh, wow. Or I put my hand on the right side. I say, may I touch? Yes. With an exhalation, move into my right hand. And then the movement comes intrinsically from them and everything is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Never outside force in a twist. So I believe that there is an anchor in every pose But in this pose, the anchor is not the sitting bones. Think about the standing poses. You don't anchor the sitting bones. You don't hold your pelvis still and try to do trikonasana and do a side bend. You don't do a forward bend. You do it over over the heads of the femurs, a forward bend. You don't anchor your pelvis and then bend your spine forward. And Mm. even in back bends, when you push up into Urvadhanyarasana, what I believe is happening is the arms and legs become the servant of the pelvis, the chalice that lifts the pelvis up, which drags the spine up with it. So the pelvis is the key. It's the structure between the column and the lower extremity. It's the center of life itself. So when you, when you practice this pose, 
before, as you begin, exhale and turn your pelvis first as if it were the first vertebra. It's not, obviously. Turn the pelvis as if it were the first vertebra. Exhale completely. Turn again on that empty breath. Not a breathing for pregnant women, by the way. Right. And then you get so much turn already in, that's in harmony. And the anchor, are you on the floor? <laughs> the anchor is not the pelvis. The anchor, drum roll, yeah. the anchor is, is the right foot and the right shin. You, you think of it as the center axis of the earth and you press down through that shin and you turn your whole, without moving the leg, keep the shin absolutely vertical. Anchor on that, lift the weight almost completely off the left buttock, anchor on the right foot, the right shin, sit on the right sitting bone and turn. And I tell you what, I've taught that in online classes in the old days where we never had, and I've had people say, I've been directing them and they say, oh my God, it doesn't hurt my left sacroiliac joint for the first yep, time. Yep, yep, I just did it. That was epic, epic, pain-free. Pain it's not even pain-free. It's a lack of tension and a much bigger breath. And you get actually get further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what I base this, I get very excited about this, as you can tell. I'm so in, this is why I love teaching anatomy. And, yes. And my daughter and I have a course called Experiential Anatomy that goes through all of this. And we have a yoga myths class, a course, of course, which just come has come out and specifically as you know and as you told us it really explains this with pictures and with drawings that what what i'm really just trying to do is ask the question what does the body tell me about its function by inviting me to look at its structure right so instead of imposing the asana i want to expose the asana. It's almost like philosophically, I think that these archetypes live in us mm. and that when we, with intention and love and devotion, we unlock the door and the archetype manifests it through us. Yeah. And, and so our job is to get out of the way. It's very much like giving birth, giving your body, an unconscious woman can give birth. So just evoking, conjuring, allowing the pose based on the structure is so empowering and liberating. And it's like, when you do it, you think, of course it makes sense. Cause now mm. the body is leading and the mind is following. Right. Right. I want to say thank you. A giant, giant, thank you from all of the yogis listening and myself for this clarity. I want to, um, point out to my yogi listener, everything from Padmasana, Lotus Pose to forward bending, everything is in this book. And it's going to give you a very new, much enriched dialogue with your practice. It's not just go to your mat and do your freaking practice. It's go to your mat and ask a bunch of questions and get very curious about these shapes you've been making for so many years and how you can actually shift your understanding by asking a different question. So I want to thank you for that. And I also would love it if you would go through and tell my listener exactly what the recent courses are so that they can get in touch with you or what the best website is, et cetera, so that they can learn with you. Thank you so much for that. It's um, www.judith.yoga. You have to put in the three W's. 
www.judith.yoga. And you can see all my courses and everything, my, my books. You can find my website with my books and my poems on it. Beautiful. I'm wondering how you would feel. I'm going to make a little noise. I would love to read you a poem that I wrote that I think that, that you and your listeners would like to hear about. I'm into it. I'm into you going into your drawers and pulling, pulling it out. It's called Sweet Body. And then I have one last comment for you personally. Okay. All right. This is a poem I wrote in 2018. Sweet Body. This came on the mat one day and I just left my yoga room and went in and typed it out in 10 minutes. It's like a gift from somewhere. Sweet, soft body that carries my radiant soul. I do not thank you enough. I do not enjoy you enough. I do not cherish you enough. More and more now, I feel an upwelling of gratitude for all you have given me. For the ability to dance, to laugh, to weep, and to inwardly soar with the beauty of this world. For three babies, plump and juicy, and full of spontaneous joy and curiosity for this miraculous life. For a heart that has been both broken and mended more than once. For the delicious taste of love. For the many chances I have had to make mistakes and then try to learn from them. Dear body, you are the true companion of my life, the vessel of my wonder, the holder of my felt intrinsic wisdom, the container of my sacred self. Forgive me. Oh, my good grief. Wow. You like that? Oh, my gosh. You can find that on my website under resources, books, and poems. It's posted for everyone. So I wanted to say to you, my dear one. Yes, yes. That you remember seeing me in person. I sadly don't because of the numbers and the years. Mm. But your reputation precedes you and it is a reputation of competence and kindness in equal measure. And I want to appreciate and acknowledge you for all the acts seen and unseen that you make on a daily basis that I, I honor you for your own practice, your own self journey, your own self awakening, which is such a, it's you are, are, are your gift to the world and you have helped so many people. And I just want to appreciate that when you have your dark moments of wondering, why am I even doing this? Cause we all have that any teacher worth her salt or his salt has that. Like, yeah. why is this what I should be doing? The occasional doubts. And I just want to tell you, have your doubts, but know that you are shining light. And I am so happy to support you in any way that I can. Because you contribute to making the world a better place for me and my children and my grandchildren. And I am giving you a gasho, a namaste, mm. a deep sense of gratitude from my heart to yours. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Made me cry. <sighs> Thank you. To quote Jane Austen, which one must do whenever possible. She's Whenever possible. Author. Same. She says, I speak as I find. Oh, gosh. Oh, so my gosh. You love and love to all your wonderful listeners. <sighs> and, and remember that you have your yoga mat in your heart all the time. And go every day and make the intention of refuge. Step on that mat 
and let your beauty shine out. That's what the world needs. It doesn't need another perfect dog pose. It needs us to live from the depths of our heart to throw open our hearts and soar through the skies. Judith. Be true to ourselves. And that's, that's the courage that we get from our practice. So much love. Thank you. And until we speak again, may we live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. Oh, gosh. I cannot ever thank you enough for this. My mother, may she rest in peace, thanks you right now. <laughs> Honestly, thank you so much. I'm crying and so grateful. Have a beautiful rest of your day. I will. Goodbye. Ooh, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.